fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. If you're curious about the intersection of where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, this is the show for you. It has been a wild year, and I'm sure wild is not the right word. I don't know how to sum up 2020 in one word, but it's been challenging for sure. Uh, However, there have been some definite highlights on this podcast throughout the past year, including crossing over the milestone of 1 million downloads, which was pretty cool, launching our new membership community, which you can join at patreon.com forward slash agriculture, and experimenting with a guest co-host on a few episodes, which I thought worked out really well with Jeanette Barner. Thank you to all of you who continue to listen to the show every week, who subscribe. It's really been one of the most fulfilling projects of my career, so I really appreciate it. Around the new year, I typically like to reflect on previous episodes, particularly those from the past year, and pull out some insights that I think are important for the future of agriculture. This approach last year produced what is still by far the most downloaded episode of this podcast titled Five Trends for the Future of Agriculture. As I reflect on the content from this past year, a different insight became immediately clear, which is ag tech, which we often talk about here, has a long way to go. I mean, as much as we talk about the money that's poured into the industry and how much potential there is for the future of agriculture, progress has been, by many measures, slow. And change, in a lot of cases, has been minimal. Now, this isn't an indictment on anyone in the industry. I mean, everybody is talented and working hard that I get to interact with. Instead, it's more of a statement that we all probably don't say often enough. Innovation, especially in agriculture, is hard. Today's episode explores some of those barriers that are holding back the entire sector and profiles a few companies that are directly addressing and trying to eliminate those barriers. Loyal listeners will remember that I love talking about the idea of enabling technologies, which is to say breakthroughs that open the floodgates for numerous future breakthroughs. The stories you'll hear today are examples of companies trying to create something that enables additional future innovation. I mean, in some cases, this is enabling technology. In others, they're doing it with their business models. If you're one of those people that is just here because you saw the title and just want the list, I'm going to give that to you now so you don't have to sit through the entire episode if you don't want to, but I encourage you to stick around. Uh, I've got two bonus barriers that I'm going to include at the end of the show, so I'm going to hold those secret from you, but I will reveal the five barriers I think are holding ag tech back, which is number one, too much risk being put on the buyer, which is in most cases the producer. Number two, limited rural connectivity. Number three, lack of integrations between ag technologies. Number four, scarcity of precision-first implementation equipment. And number five, the inability to find product market fit. A lot of those probably won't surprise you because they are things that have come up in the past on this show. Stay tuned for the companies that are trying to directly break through these five barriers and at the end, two bonus barriers that still exist but I don't see viable or scalable solutions for those two quite yet. First, though, we're going to start with a major problem in ag tech, which is the buyer ends up taking all of the risk. They pay for a product or service, and if it doesn't work, they kind of live with the consequences. And it's not surprising why so many of the ag tech customers are soured by the concept of something new. But what if we could create a sort of warranty-like product 
that the ag tech community or retailer subsidizes for the producer that pays out if the product doesn't live up to the marketing. That's what Growers Edge has done. They're offering financial products that serve as sort of warranties for certain agricultural products and have also added other financial services as well. CEO Dan Cosgrove was on the show way back in episode 156, but at that time he had just started this new role and it's been a while. So I decided to chat with him again this past month about the company. That's primarily our driver is can we come up with a way uh, by, by our recommendations to get those growers to adopt some of these new and very beneficial advancements uh, in ag and to try those out without putting themselves in, in a position where they might be taking more risk than they want to. Just so you know, we, we haven't yet launched it, but we're very, very close uh, launching a lending arm as well, where we, again, work with ag retail. We are able to create for them almost a lending as a service platform where they they can offer their growers their own labeled branded lending opportunity that we administer and handle behind the scenes all hoping to solve two big problems for the grower risk management and access to capital so as you just heard Dan and his team at Growers Edge are trying to break through that first barrier I mentioned by de-risking the process of trying new agricultural products this allows ag tech companies and retailers to put their money where their mouth is and share some of the risk with that grower. This is especially important after many growers have been burned by taking all of the risks themselves for years. There's a lot of people that are making promises. If you try my new product, you're going to get three, four, five bushels per acre. And I think farmers could go broke taking to the bank all those three, four, five bushels per acre. What we're trying to do is put a little economic rigor behind those products and those tools. If the farmer follows the steps that we recommend, we usually will land on a yield benchmark and they will exceed that benchmark or they get a check. And it's as simple as that. So Grower's Edge evaluates these products and the promises being made, then determines a price for this warranty-like product, similar to writing an insurance policy. They've already been selling through some Syngenta brands and through retailers like Helena. In some cases, the manufacturer or retailer may choose to subsidize or even cover the cost of the warranty for the grower, depending on the situation. For the grower, I think the impact should be in two areas. One, they should get a little bit more peace of mind when they're trying these new technologies, new seed, new chemistry, new digital tools, that they're going to deliver what they promise or there will be some warranty back to them. Um, so hopefully it creates a little bit of an economic incentive for them to try some of these that look really good to them, but they were concerned about trying something new and how it might impact their entire operation. On the lending side, what we hope to do is get credit to them in the most cost-efficient way to make their sign-on process uh, and application process easy, digital, quick, and uh, hopefully that allows them to you know, get about their real job and that's you know, hopping in that cab and planting some seeds. So ideally, that's, that's our one-two punch, Tim, is access to capital and risk management. And I actually think that there's another potential layer here as well. I think something like this could help ag tech companies get more distribution. I mean, if they're willing to participate in some of the downside risk, it may allow retailers to feel more comfortable carrying new products since they're less likely to experience the backlash of it not working for their farmer customers. 
We have not had those yet, Tim, but that's certainly the folks that we're talking to now. Now that we've kind of made inroads in the ag retail market, we are now looking at those manufacturers, whether it's a, a, a new technology, a, you know, a new digital tool or whatever, a new microbial seed treatment or soil additive, we can certainly help them position their product with the ag retailer because it can come with it a warranty-backed protection that then the ag retailer will be able to rely on that a little bit as well as their customer and say, well, you know, we've only tested this for maybe a year or two or three years, but it also comes with a warranty. We feel really good, farmer, about you adopting this practice as well. Very exciting solution to a real challenge out there. Grower's Edge closed a $40 million Series B investment round this year and are ramping up efforts in both risk management and lending. So that's the first barrier to ag tech, putting too much risk on the buyer. The second is more of a technical barrier, which is rural connectivity. For as much as we talk about data in agriculture, we are still limited in our ability to actually collect data for real-time decision-making. The Internet of Things is full of wonderful tools if you can somehow get them connected. As many of us have experienced, even in 2020, rural connectivity still leaves much to be desired. But Swarm is actually making some serious headway on their goal of solving for global affordable connectivity for connected devices. We spoke with CEO and co-founder Sarah Spangolo on episode 228 about how they are achieving that goal by launching constellations of sandwich-sized satellites into lower orbit space. We have made tremendous strides towards that goal over the last three and a half years. We've launched uh, nine of the world's smallest communication satellites that literally fit in your hand. And we've done a variety of trials and pilots providing low-cost connectivity solutions on a global scale to a variety of different verticals, including ag tech and logistics and energy and other IoT applications. And this is a very exciting year for us because we are going live in the commercial sense. So we have all our regulatory approvals. We'll be launching about 150 more over the next year. And that'll provide us with a, yeah, a network of 150 satellites for global continuous coverage, covering every point on Earth at all times, and essentially providing a lower cost version of existing networks that people might know of, like Iridium and Orbcom. They do provide satellite connectivity, but they're so expensive that most people don't use them or even know about them. And with our network, we'll be about 10 times lower cost, meaning it starts to become accessible for farming and agriculture and logistics and keeping people safe globally. Sarah says traditionally satellite connectivity has been too expensive and alternatives very limited. This has been holding back a lot of innovation related to internet connected devices on farm. Yeah, so a lot of the sensing companies today in the ag tech space rely on cellular coverage so they can only deploy where there's cell. And often that's very frustrating because they'll think they have cell in like Napa and then they'll deploy a bunch of sensors and they don't actually. So it's not super useful. They may also rely on other terrestrial systems like GSM or LoRaWAN or Sigvox or Zigbee in certain locations. You know, there's all these different terrestrial wireless protocols. The challenges with all of them, of course, is they have limited reach. So, you know, it's only out to maybe tens or hundreds of kilometers in certain cases, and then just nothing. So very limited. They can't rely on a single global solution. Some egg tech companies may use Orbcom or Iridium, but again, that's pretty rare just because of the margins and the cost structure of those prohibitively expensive solutions. How that will change with Swarm 
is that those that are using cellular can now extend their coverage to be truly global and it will be at a price point that is reasonable for them. So in the ag tech space, it's a lot of people going from using cell in cell to now using swarm outside of cell. And that allows them to have truly global reach, which is very impactful for a lot of their business cases. Swarm's customer is actually the ag tech company itself, not typically the farmer. They sell both the hardware and the connectivity as a service, similar to a cell phone provider. The ag tech company would then include these costs, like any other, into their service offering to the farmer. We sell hardware um, and we have a very simple small modem, which is somewhat like a cellular modem, but it's a satellite modem. that gets embedded within a sensor like Arable's moisture sensor, for example. We also have a standalone device that has its own battery and antenna and processor that can be connected wirelessly or wired to sensors. So we sell those two devices, kind of like selling a cell phone or a cell phone chip that then gets embedded into a third-party device. And then we sell our services much like um, a cell phone service. So it's, you know, X dollars per month for a certain data volume, much like, you know, your Google Fi or your AT&T or Verizon type subscription. Um, And that's it. We don't have setup fees. We don't have annual fees. We don't have teardown fees. The farmer is probably more the end user, so it's more likely that we would sell to some sort of systems integrator that would create some sort of like moisture sensing package that would include, obviously, the moisture sensor, the swarm system, and then some sort of platform that the farmer can use to determine whether or not they should you know, bring in their yield or water or not water, and they would resell that to the farmer. And then in talking to early customers, Many of them have been in the ag tech space, whether it's Arable, which is you know an ag tech company that does moisture sensing here in California, SweetSense that does water pump and borehole monitoring in Africa, but also looking to expand to California. Also a lot of like beehives, so pollinating in New Zealand and Australia and California. So many of our early customers that have immediately jumped on board to swarm have been in the ag tech space. So that's also been very validating. We're also talking to many enterprises, so like uh, the Syngentas of the world, we have a partnership with Ford, we're talking to Maersk. So there's other companies where because they're a big enterprise, they most likely would be the end user as well. They would buy swarm services and embed them and use them within their fleets of ships or trucks or tractors or vehicles. Swarm has really overcome a variety of technical and regulatory issues to bring this offering to the market. I think this is a great example of an enabling technology that can really lay the groundwork for future innovations in agriculture. Again, you can listen to that full episode with Sarah back in episode 228, so 10 episodes ago, I guess. But what if enabling technologies like this lead to a 10x increase in the number of different ag tech applications? Are farmers really going to just keep adding application after application for infinity and use them all individually? Well, of course not. And that leads us to number three on my list of barriers to ag tech, the lack of integrations. We actually talked about this problem with Corey Wilness back in episode 211. I think we called them data silos. And Corey was saying one problem is everybody wants to be the platform instead of just focusing on building a great application that might be able to integrate with other applications. Well, that integration piece is actually pretty difficult, and Leaf is a company that was started specifically to create these integrations between ag tech applications, 
so that a user can easily connect the various ag technologies they are using. This problem is often referred to as data interoperability. Bailey Stockdale is the founder and CEO of Leaf. He's from a farm background in the U.S., but actually found the problem and started his company in Brazil. After school, I found an opportunity to go down to Brazil to Mato Grosso, which is a massive agriculture state in Brazil. And I met up with a lot of the big growers there, so 300 to 500,000 hectare farming operations, just massive. And they you know, were really advanced and very aggressive in adoption of new digital tools. And one of the big pieces was imagery. And so, you know, they were asking me, well, can you, you know, set this up for us? And I said, sure. <laughs> so uh, ran around and set up, you know, imagery. We used airplanes and drones. And that was great. But we obviously very quickly um, needed to bring in contextual data to support that. Um, so weather station data, soil test data, obviously machine data um, to, you know, add value <laughs> instead of just providing the images. And a lot of these growers had those internal systems, but a lot didn't. And so we, you know, called every company we could find and every single company said, we'd love to work with you, but hey, we're working on, you know, this partner integration, give us 18 months and give us a call back. And we just kind of shook our heads and thought, wait a minute, that is not a healthy industry, right? There's no way this can be successful if that's, you know, how this is working. And so um, really from there, that's when we got the idea for Leaf, uh, really to solve our own problem. You know, we need to bring in data in, a, in an easy, unified way from, you know, 50 companies regionally. And, and there's no way to do that, right? It would, it would probably actually be impossible for us, right? The, the years and years that it would take. So that's how we got started. Bailey says a lot of the reason that companies don't just do this themselves is because they're building an ag tech product, which is frankly, really hard. Any resources that are directed to integrations are resources taken away from the difficult task of making a great product that solves a real problem in the way it's supposed to. Specifically on the technical side, I think a lot of the reasons why companies have been, I mean, frankly, like a lot of products, you know, somewhat underwhelming, right, and not delivering on the full promise is because there is a massive technical jump from we're going to build this or we're going to agronomic recommendations like this and actually being able to execute that. Um, and it's not just the small companies, right? So it's, it goes big, too. So what Leaf helps customers do is create what Bailey calls data infrastructure, to allow various agricultural applications to easily be connected to each other by the user to share data. When I say data infrastructure, I mean really like integrations and data pipelines between companies. So an example, a classic example, and we do a lot of this, is if you have a partnership with John Deere or Climate Field View or Trimble or CNHI or Raven, any of these companies, and you want to do something fairly simple like display a planted or applied map on a dashboard, right? Or, or figure out crop type and planting date. Um, that's actually an extremely difficult challenge to do manually uh, without infrastructure because you would have to go individually to each one of these and figure out their own internal systems before you can pull that data. So when I say infrastructure, I mean the tools and essentially like tooling, right? To make pulling that data uh, much easier and um, much more streamlined in a unified way. Some might say that ag tech just needs to be more collaborative. But Bailey says these data interoperability problems can't be solved by just announcing partnerships. The technical aspects behind the scenes are very difficult to execute. He sees the early use cases being so seamless that a user doesn't even realize an integration has been created. What matters a lot more is getting the value to the grower. And it's not always the grower. It could be consumers. It could be uh, other businesses. But in this case, like let's let's think about growers. A simple example is, okay, I have a, an ERP or a farm management system. And today I manually enter right all of the information that goes into that. 
uh, and I use that, right? And then the farm management system uses that to maybe give me recommendations or even just display that data so that I can I can look at it on a, on a chart. That's great. What if we could auto import all that data, right? So you don't have to do the manual entry. Okay, well, that's right. quite easy um, using Leaf. You just use Leaf, you connect with all the different machinery accounts or cloud platforms that you have, and then you can pull that data in a consistent format from, from any of them, right? So that's powerful. So that's a, it's a small use case, it's a mini use case, but I think there's still quite a bit of value there. That's why I use Zoom and Google Calendar, right? So I don't have to do a uh, you know copy and paste or, or manual data entry. From there, it gets much more complex. So I wanted to highlight that small one first, just to show that it's hidden, right? That's not something that everyone's gonna drop everything and go run to do, but it's powerful and it's useful and it's simple and it's already in tools that they're using. And I see the same progression happening on the financial side because these are decisions that growers are very, very good at, financial decisions. And so if you bake in, right, smart models, but it's all in the background, right, where you, you know, essentially it's like a, a smart lending rate where your lending rate will adjust based on uh, your, you know, your last five years of uh, operations data, right? So if you consistently do the right things at the right time, then wonderful, like we'll, we'll reduce your rate. That's not a, I mean, you know, so you click the data share button and you go and you authenticate the data and then you get a, you know, a, a huge discount on your lending rate. And that's wonderful. But it's not something that you're thinking, I need this data, right? You're thinking, I need a better rate. <laughs> and so it's, I think the, the first big cases are going to be actually built into a lot of the decisions that are made every day. But in the backside, right, these decisions will, and in products, will be powered by a massive amount of data. But for the end user, it's just going to be a better deal or, you know, a, a smarter, um, smarter decision. So that's, that's why I see it progressing at first. But you may be asking yourself, isn't everyone out there just trying to hoard data so that they can capture the value from that data? Bailey sees this mentality slowly changing in agriculture for the better. In fact, we just talked about it last episode with Craig Gansel. The value of data is not in who has the most of it, but it's in who can use it. Oh, and quick note here before this next clip, Bailey will mention Plaid as an example, which basically does these same integrations for fintech, financial tech that Leaf is doing for ag tech. The value of the data is not having it in a box somewhere where it just sits there and you know hopes to maybe be used one day by a feature that they might build one day. I think even the large companies look at this and say, well, we have this valuable data. If everything is built right with our data and we have these wonderful compatibility everywhere, right? That's really how we unlock the data. And I think the other side of this is kind of an effect where, like we'll use the Venmo example. If, if you're a bank and you're not compatible with Plaid, then you're not compatible with Venmo. And that's a big problem <laughs> because consumers love Venmo. And so I, I think it's it's a little bit of that as well, where everyone is moving in this direction. Are you really going to be the only company that's not compatible with this financial application or this farm management uh, application or this agronomic recommendation? So I think the other way to look at it is, is kind of being pulled in from the application side, right? And as these new applications that are generating great value emerge and, and flourish, you've got to be part of them um, or else, you know, you're going to be the only one that's not. <laughs> and that's going to be a problem for your, your uh, core business. We are better off together. Great perspective there by Leaf CEO Bailey Stockdale. Check them out at withleaf.io. They recently raised a $2 million seed round from several investors, including Francisco Hardim of SP Ventures, who was on this podcast just recently on episode 230. With all of this data talk about collecting data, with connectivity and sharing data across platforms, we need to continue to create new ways to actually take action against the data we're collecting and learning from. Most farming is still done with the type of machinery that was developed long before we had what we refer to now as precision agriculture. And that's barrier number four. 
a lack of precision-first implementation equipment. We talked about this in episode 196 with Sam Watson-Jones of the Small Robot Company, and then again on episode 200 with Michael Ott of Rantizo. I could have used clips from either one of these great episodes, but for today, I chose to focus on Rantizo because their drone spraying solution is so unique and immediately competitive with the scale of established equipment. I also chose them because they are not only enabling just precision applications of liquids via drone, but also of cover crop seed, beneficial insects, and even pollen. Here's CEO Michael Ott explaining how the Rantizo drone spraying system works. Uh, so we're flying about 15 miles an hour. We're covering right now 14 acres an hour. So that's at a three gallon per acre rate. That's our, our current setup. With our automated mix and fill system, we'll bump that to about 20 to 23. That'll be out in a couple months. And then by the end of the summer, we'll be swarming, flying three of these at once. And then we'll be covering about 60 acres an hour. So that'll be what most tractors are doing, about 60, 80 acres an hour. So we'll be able to do that in any situation. You might be wondering how someone can fly three drones at once in a swarm situation. Well, the drones actually fly themselves. They're completely automated. Michael also mentioned there at the end that they'll be able to cover the same amount of ground as a tractor in any situation. And that's actually a big differentiator here we can get into fields where nobody else can. So a day like today in Iowa, so it's raining pretty hard. Uh, it'll rain till about 2, 2.30. And if we wanted to, we could go spray this afternoon. We're doing a demo tomorrow. It's gonna be super sloppy and muddy. That's totally fine. We can get out and apply in those situations. So one, it gives access to fields where nobody else can. That's that's a, a primary uh, benefit. A secondary benefit is that we can apply to just portions of fields. So we had a press release. I don't know if you saw that. We integrated with an imagery company called Tyrannus. We mapped out the issue in the field and saw that there was a micronutrient deficiency in this case. It could have been a micronutrient or a pest or whatever it was, but the takeaway is that it was a small portion of the field that needed to be sprayed. So we understood what needed to be sprayed right there, applied just in that location, and we got a 2.6% yield increase in that farmer's soybeans. So rather than spray the whole field, we sprayed just a portion of it. So there's a significant advantage for the farmer especially, because we can dramatically reduce your input costs just applying where things need to go. We're solving for the labor problem that pretty much everyone has. That in, in corn, soybeans, in hemp, in berries, in orchards, everybody has labor problems. So that's what we're solving for. So we stay uh, below 55 pounds, we end up making multiple trips, which is fine because we can actually tailor the uh, what is delivered out there if you want to. Like when you've got a sprayer, you're basically spraying, a ground sprayer, you've got one thing that you're spraying through the whole field like, okay, we're going to hit the whole thing with Roundup. We're going to hit the whole thing with this insecticide or whatever it is. We can put insecticide there. We can put herbicide there. We can put nutrients here. So we can really modulate what you will put in the field uh, with those smaller loads. So we, we take what could be a disadvantage and turn it into a pretty big advantage. So this is a breakthrough technology for a number of reasons, such as Rantizo has blazed the trail to make this possible from just a regulatory standpoint, which is a major hurdle. And also, their technology allows for a lot more specialty applications to be precisely administered. On the liquid front, we're doing anything you can apply aerially, 
herbicide, pesticide, insecticide, you name it. If there's an aerial rate, we can spray that. Also, on the granular side, we're doing cover crop seeds, which we did a ton at the end of last year. That was a really, really nice opportunity for us. We've done granular fertilizers. So if you've got something that you need to drop out there, we can we can put those in. Beneficial insects, we can spray. And then exciting announcement that we've got, we've applied pollen to corn from a drone. And I believe we were the only people ever to successfully pollinate corn from a drone. So we partnered up with a pollen storage technology company who's fabulous. And then we were able to fly and apply putting the pollen exactly where we wanted it to go using RTK technology and then deploying that way. So our standard unit uh, with standard GPS is accurate to about one meter. So we're within that close to where we intend to be. Uh, With our RTK upgrade, we're within three centimeters. So we're accurate to that level. So when we're doing something like super precise with pollen or we're doing something for a... um, a nursery that we really want to be exact, we use the RTK. Uh, some people just really like RTK precision. So yeah. you put a real fine point on it, which is great. We're happy to sell that. Uh, but most of the time, the standard GPS is, is great. Talking with Michael there in episode 200 was definitely one of those that I just left energized about the potential here. They've since raised a $7.5 million Series A round led by Leaps by Bayer. Okay, now on to the elephant in the room, which is number five on the list of barriers. Probably the biggest challenge in ag tech is a bunch of money being invested in products that it turns out not many people really want. Product market fit or the disconnect between ag tech investors and customers is arguably the biggest barrier to be overcome in ag tech, in my opinion. Another word for this challenge is simply adoption which was the focus of the series of episodes we did throughout this past year in partnership with Intent, whose mission is to accelerate adoption of the best-in-class agricultural solutions by leveraging innovative techniques. We saw that mission in practice by talking to farmers and Intent clients in episodes 194, 215, 226, and 234. We heard from numerous examples of how much effort goes into the iterative process finding true product market fit. Sean Bloomgren is a farmer and local ag retailer in Iowa who joined us on episode 215 to talk about his experience of working with Intent and Pivot Bio. His perspective as both a farmer and retailer, I thought, was extremely valuable. I think the concept of ag sales is starting to dissipate. It's something that we work a lot in our, in our organization. It's not our job to convince you of something. It's our job to know and understand what's available in this industry and help our growers come up with the, with the best set of resources to accomplish their goals. And, and so for us, we, it's, it, it sounds really cheesy and I don't even like saying it, but we, I think our job really is to educate people. You know, we've got a, a large group of people that come to us and they want us to help them know and understand what's available to them what would fit well into their organization. And we can't do that if we don't, if we don't have access to the type of work that Intent is doing. Historically, it feels like a lot of information has been held very close to the chest and oftentimes is done internally by companies when we can actually go to a third party like Intent that, that gets to see you know, all these different things in the industry and works with real growers. In my opinion, it, it raises our ability to know and understand and go with confidence to our growers that what we're bringing them is, is a valuable part of their farming operation and ultimately will allow them a return on investment. That's our, 
that's our job, right? Is to educate these guys on what they can what they can use to accomplish their goals. Okay, if you haven't listened to any of those Intent episodes yet, this may be a little bit confusing. Intent works with ag companies of all sizes to help them accelerate adoption by facilitating farmer trials, feedback, data collection, and data analysis. This is so important to finding that product market fit. Because as Sean says, farmers want to try new technology and be involved in the process, but they also have a very demanding business to run. There's a a pretty significant gap in my mind. A lot of times you have conversations, whether it's on your own family farm or even with the growers that we partner with. And it's amazing the conversations that take place in November, December, January, you know, when you're ag shows or when you're learning about things. And it's funny how eager people are during those months to say, oh yeah, I'd love to try this product or learn more. And then when you actually get into the execution phase, that becomes a lot more difficult. You know, we've we've created an an ag system that continues to move faster and faster and cover more acres and 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 smaller windows of times that we're trying to execute these things. And so I think that actual process of saying, yes, we're interested. Yes, we want to try this out. But then the actual process of execution is often a lot more difficult than we uh, than we maybe think it is. And and those are hard lessons to learn, you know, and, and they're very frustrating. And oftentimes in a cycle that only you only have one opportunity a year to do, it's amazing how you can burn an entire year and go, man, there's really a lot of things I wanted to learn. And I didn't I didn't take the time or put in the effort to build them in the right way to really get the information I was hoping for. Rigorous data is only one part of what is needed to make sure that products are a potential fit for market adoption. The rest of the process is incredibly complex, and all of it is what intent helps their customers navigate. Sean sums it up perfectly. It's amazing to me. We have we have an abundance of technology and a lack of clarity on what it is we're trying to accomplish. And, and I and I really think that's a lot of what what intent has brought to the table for us, we have they haven't really brought necessarily new technology for us. They've helped us, they've helped us to use the technology we have to ask the questions we want to ask and then answer them. And when I say that, I do want to, I do want to give them a huge kudos. I think there's a ton of technology on the backside that we don't see in terms of how they process and break apart the data and that sort of thing. But in terms of on the front facing side of it, you know, we have it, we need someone to come in and really help us understand and execute that process. And and if I could also, Tim, just just grab onto what Dan was talking about be, before we went to this point. One, this is a, a huge compliment, in my opinion, to Pivot Bio, but also to the partnership with Intent. When you are launching a product, especially a product that's coming out of the the biological space, which is which is a it's a space that that really needs to establish credibility. One of the challenging things, whether you're a farmer choosing to invest or whether you're a seller that wants to go offer this to their growers, really is the ability to handle objections well, you know, handle objections well and give confidence to the end user. And so when you look at what Pivot has done, in large part because of the partnership with Intent, they've allowed to say, we know these certain things to be true from our internal data. And a lot of companies would have said, based on that, we're going to go to market. I think that Pivot knew that in and of itself isn't enough. So now we're going to go partner with Intent. We're going to build a broader network. We're going to verify that what we know to be true in the lab is is true in the field. And then that's not even going to be enough. Now we're going to go and we're going to partner with land-grant universities so that we can, we can again, verify our information. So as someone who both uses the product on, on personal acres and also sells the product, the really nice part for me is I can say, hey, here's what we know scientifically to be true. And here's, you know, here's proof from an independent third party. And then, and then here's proof from 
a land grant university and and as we can kind of build those those blocks of confidence in it makes adoption of this stuff so much easier than if it's simply we know this to be true in a lab and and that oftentimes i think is the the great gap you have to get across with biological products is just seeing them vetted out over a large enough area that full interview with Sean Bloomgren and also Dan Poston from Pivot Bio can be found on episode 215. Also, check out Intent at www.intent.ag. That's I-N, the number 10, T.ag, intent.ag. If one message or theme should float to the top from all of this, it's this. Ag innovation is hard. I mean, really hard. But if successful companies like the five profiled in this episode will open doors for more ag tech innovations in the future. Will it still be difficult? Of course it will. But some of the major barriers that we're experiencing today will be more surmountable. I mentioned at the top of the show that I also have an additional two barriers that I would share here at the end. The first one has to do with funding models. The companies mentioned have each received at least some type of venture financing. But in my opinion, the venture capital model is a good fit for a very small percentage of the potentially viable ag tech businesses. But there are a lot of great ideas out there for truly viable businesses that aren't set up to potentially be billion dollar unicorns. What is the funding model for these businesses? I think there are opportunities here, and I would love your suggestions or solutions or potential people to talk to about this barrier that still very much exists. The second bonus barrier here is discoverability and some sort of validation. How can users of ag technology keep up with the latest products that are hitting the market and hear what early users are saying about them? This is a problem that I'd actually like to try my hand at tackling in 2021. I'm going to start off with dusting off the old Future of Agriculture email list. So if you're interested in this concept, please make sure you go to futureofag.com and click on the email icon there in the center of the page to sign up. I'll be sending out regular emails with, in addition to my normal content, the latest ag products with input and feedback from early users whenever possible. So once again, we'll add these two bonus barriers and my seven total now barriers to ag tech advancement are... Too much risk being put on the buyer, in most cases the producer. Number two, limited rural connectivity. Number three, lack of integrations between ag technologies. Number four, scarcity of precision-first implementation equipment. Number five, inability to find product market fit. Number six, lack of alternative funding models other than venture capital. And number seven, challenges in discoverability and validation. What would you add to the list or take off the list? I'd love to hear. Tweet me. I'm at Tim Hamrich. Thank you so much for your time and your attention throughout 2020. I really don't take it lightly. I hope you'll stick with me for another year here. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.